These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them, for, for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and the wicked one touches him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Father in heaven, as we gather around the Word this evening, it's my hope that Your words would challenge us, change us, and give us a charge to go out into this world as, as new creatures. Uh, we do love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we finally come to, to the end of 1 John, and what a wonderful study it's been for me. John is a great encourager. When you look at this, you can see that. And as he closes the epistle, he encourages us even more. If you'll notice when we were using that, when we were reading through there, he uses that phrase, we know, um, at least six times there. And John is showing us that there are certain things that believers absolutely know about their relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And he reminds us of indisputable facts that we can cling to. And it's always amazing to be when you, when you preach expository sermons and you go work uh, through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you'll remember this morning, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning, uh, the whole section was about not knowing, wasn't it? This unpredictable life, having no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or anything. There are things that we just don't know. And then tonight's message is what? Things we know. And that wasn't planned at all. It's just the way the Lord does that, where you fall into uh, the Word of God out. And so I want you to see, first of all, in verse 13, the first thing that John says is that we know we have eternal life. Notice at the beginning of the verse, John says, These things have I written unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John gives us a twofold purpose for, for writing this letter. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, he said that he wrote this letter so that our joy would be full. Nothing gives us joy like knowing we have eternal life. Amen? Nothing gives us joy like knowing that we are saved. The certainty of salvation, as I mentioned this morning in our message, brings us great joy. Uh, the phrase, these things, refers back to everything that he's written in this letter so far. Uh, John told us that we can know for certain we are saved because we walk in the light. In chapter 1, verse 7, he said that we can know we're, for certain we're saved because we keep the commandments of God. In chapter 2, and verse 3, he said that we can know that we're saved because we love one another. In chapter 2, verse 10, and he also said that we can know that we're saved because we continue in the church. In chapter 2, and verse 19, he said that. And so this epistle serves almost like a checklist for a person that 
wants to conduct a spiritual inventory on themselves. And his, his purpose is to say, hey, if these things are true about you, you're saved. If these things are true about you, if you could go through all of these things that I'm listing here and know that these things are true about you, then you can know that you're saved. You see, basically, John's been saying over and over in this letter that if we're saved, we'll know it because our salvation will lead to a transformed life. A life of love for the Lord, love for other people, righteous behavior. Now, John's hearers, as we said when we introduced this book, were assaulted by false teachers. And false teachers often threaten a person at the point of their salvation. They'll say, you have to join my movement because your movement can't bring you eternal life. Your group can't lead you to heaven. And that's oftentimes what false teachers do, and that's what they were doing in John's day. And so John here, he he wants those he's writing to know that they're saved. He says, you need to know that you have eternal life. Eternal life has been given to you, he says, because you believe on the name of the Son of God. Salvation has been extended to these people by grace, through faith. So if you're a believer today, if if you're a Christian today, your salvation is a matter of fact. We are saved We have a no-so salvation. Amen? We can absolutely know that we are saved. And as a a believer, because we're saved, we know what that means. That means we have eternal life. So the first thing he says, this indisputable fact is, if you are saved, you know that you have eternal life. Now, the second thing we see is, he says that we can know that God will hear our prayers. Look at verse 14. John says that we have a confidence in God that enables us to go to God, to petition God in prayer. The Greek word for confidence there is a word that means a freedom in speaking. So we have the freedom to come to God and to speak with Him, that we can be open with God, we can share our heart with God without any fear at all. I want to take a couple of sub-points from that major point here now. The first one being this. If we're going to pray and we're going to have answered prayer, prayer has to be according to the will of God. Now, in order for a prayer to be according to the will of God, there's a couple of things that have to be understood. Number one, unbelievers should not expect their prayers to be answered by God. Now listen, God may answer an unbeliever's prayer. He may. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. But an unbeliever should never expect his or her prayers to be answered at all. God has not covenanted Himself with a person who's not saved. So if we want our prayers answered, the very first thing we should do is to be saved. To come to Christ in repentance and faith. And to enter into a covenant relationship with God. Secondly, we should not expect God to answer our prayers if we're living in sin. The Bible teaches that sin greatly hinders our prayer life. We know verses like Psalm 66 and verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. There's a verse also in Peter, a very interesting verse in 1 Peter 3, 7, that talks about a married couple and how when a married couple have sin between themselves, how it hinders their prayer life. And so we see in Scripture that sin hinders prayer, even in the believer's life. So if you want your prayers answered, you need to make sure that you're not living in sin. And then thirdly, uh, we should pray in Jesus' name. 
Now, if you're praying in Jesus' name, what does that mean? That means that the ultimate goal of your prayer is to glorify Jesus. The ultimate goal of your prayer is not to puff yourself up, not to make yourself great, but to lift up the mighty name of Jesus. Which means that you should never pray for anything that's not consistent with the desires of Jesus. Right? Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And John tells us, look, God's always going to answer the prayer that's in accordance with His will. Look at verse 15. It's a great verse. It's a beautiful verse. And the idea is when our desires are God's desires and we bring those desires before God, we can expect God to answer our prayers. But the key really is this, getting to the place where our desires are God's desires, right? That's the key. Getting to that place where our desires are God's desires. I don't think it's as difficult to do as we would like to think it is. More than anything, you know what? It, it, it involves just surrendering. Surrendering like Jesus did in the garden. And He was wrestling with going to the cross and everything. That cup which symbolized the suffering that He was going to go. And He didn't want to take that cup. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Remember that? But then He said, nevertheless, what? Not my will be done, but your, your will be done. It's getting to that place where even when life hurts, we say, Lord, I trust you. Lord, you're in control. Now look at verses 16 and 17. They fit into what John is talking about because they do relate to prayer. Very interesting verses. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now these verses relate to prayer. And John gives us an example of what it means to pray outside of God's will here. John says, if we see a brother sin a sin that is not unto death, then we should pray for that brother. Now what are we praying for? We're praying for his restoration. We're praying for God to bless him again. To put it into the exact context, I think John is saying that we should pray that God heals the brother because I think the idea is this was a person who, uh, because of their own uh, disobedience to the Lord, the discipline of the Lord has come against them and they've gotten sick. And the idea is you're praying for this person to, to be healed. Now, John here, they would have known a lot more than we understand, by the way, when we're looking at this because it's hard for us. So what we have to do, we have to pull in other places in the Bible where, where, we, see, uh, where we see likenesses to this. And, uh, and one of the most uh, relatable parts of the Bible will be 1 Corinthians 11. Whenever the people were taking the Lord's Supper and they weren't listening to the Lord, they'd come in, they were living in sin, and they were taking the Lord's Supper, not thinking about the significance of it, not thinking about living a holy life or anything. And, and it had become such a mess up there that Paul says, look, the Lord has brought discipline against this church. He said, some of you are sick because you're, you're living in such sin. And he said, some of you have already died. And because the Lord has come here and He's disciplined you because you won't get your life right with Him. See, a person can get so far away from God that God will use extreme measures to keep them from going any further. That's what He does sometimes. That's a part of God's keeping grace. And if you've got a person and, and, and they're living in sin and the Lord is disciplining those people with the purpose of bringing them back, 
To pray for that person's healing is to pray outside of God's will because you're saying, God, stop doing what you're doing in order to bring that person back to yourself. And that's why you don't pray for this person like that. Because God's doing something that you and I can't understand. Something bigger. You know, when you think about that, I mean, certainly we don't want to talk about that in church. We don't want to think about that God would use sickness or God would use disease or anything. But Scripture is pretty clear that He does. He absolutely does. He uses things like that to get our attention. And if those things won't get our attention, you know what the Lord will do? The Lord will take us out early. He will absolutely take us. I I know people that I believe with all of my heart because they got trapped up in some false doctrine, because they wouldn't turn away from some of this stuff, that the Lord went on and took them home. Took them home early. And if that's what the Lord was doing, and I'm praying, God, you heal this person, you heal this person, what am I doing? I'm praying outside of the will of the Lord. Now, not all sin results in God taking away the life of the sinner. And thank the Lord for that. Amen? In verse 17, John says that all unrighteousness is sin, but some sin, some of these people, it leads them to physical death. I just want to interject something here. This verse proves that there are degrees of sin. There are people who say, well, sin is sin. Well, sin is all sinful, but all sin is not equally sinful. And these verses here are are a perfect example of that. There are times when you are sinning more than you are at other times. Now, John says here, um, (coughs) I apologize. No, I promise you I'm not sick anymore. I've just got a lot of residual stuff from the last time I had COVID. And it's really been difficult for me to get through this throat thing. So I'm, I'm sorry for that. But there are times when it's appropriate to pray for a person, to look at a person and say, Lord, I pray that you'll heal them. And the hope is that Lord will heal them, restore their life, they'll get their life right with God. No, you say, why did John throw that in there? Why did he throw this little instance in there? Well, he's using this example to teach us that discernment in prayer is necessary. You're saying, why isn't the Lord answering this prayer? Why isn't the Lord answering this prayer? He's not answering that prayer possibly because God's doing something bigger than you can see. God's intent is to bring this person back to Himself. And if God just lets that person be healthy and lets that person be wealthy and lets that person be so blessed, guess what? That person may never see their need, right? They may never see their need to come back. And so that's the idea. You've got to have discernment in prayer. There are some things in life, y'all, that you can pray and pray and pray for. But they're just not going to happen because they're outside of God's will. And when you know that, when you see that, you shouldn't even pray for such things. Now, it's hard to know. It's hard to know when those times are. And I don't think that John is suggesting here that, that, that we shouldn't pray for people. I don't think he's saying that at all. He's just saying that you've got to understand that sometimes there's prayer that isn't going to be answered. God's will can be very mysterious. And we need to seek His face sometimes to know it. But nevertheless, the whole point is this. God hears your prayers, and if it appears that He doesn't hear your prayers, it may just be that what you're praying for is not the will of the Lord. What you're praying for is not something that God is doing. Now the third thing that we can know is this. We can know that true believers don't live in sin. Thank you, brother. Amen. That's deaconing in action right there, isn't it? Right there, buddy. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. 
Look at verse 18. As, as we said earlier, John's not talking about sinless perfection here. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. So uh, John isn't saying, hey, if you're saved, you never sin. He already told us in chapter 1, verse 8, everybody sins. He also told us that we have an advocate when we sin who continues to cleanse us from our sin. We need this advocate even when we're believers. Chapter 2, verse 1, even when we're believers, we need this advocate. We're born of God. We're new creatures, but we are not in our glorified state yet. 1 John 3, 2 tells us that. But notice he makes a clear distinction between sinning. When you look at that, he's saying here there's a distinction. To live in sin is different than sinning. What does it mean to to live in sin? Well, to live in sin means that it's your pattern of life. It's just what you do. I was talking to our group the other day that meets on Thursdays about something like this. And I was sharing an illustration with them. I said, you know, we're all, we all sin. And like, let's say you're sitting at a, a red light and, and it turns green. And, you know, 10 seconds goes by and the car in front of you hasn't went. And you're aggravated, you know, because you know they're on their phone, right? And you're aggravated and you get to, you know, rah, 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 rah. You know, you're just a talking and a talking and a talking. And, and then they go and then you have to say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. You know, I got mad. I got upset. I shouldn't have done that. We do stuff like that every day, don't we? Every single day we do stuff like that. But then I said, but then there's people who say, you know what? I think I'll get drunk tonight. And they get in the car and they drive to the liquor store and they get out of the car and they go inside and they grab a case of beer and they pull their wallet out and and they buy it and then they go back home and they drink that whole case of beer. Listen, you planned on it, man. You know? That's the difference, y'all. That, that is, that's the difference. And we all sin and living in sin, right? One, you plan to sin. You plan your whole day. I'm just going to sin today. And the other is just living in these frail bodies that's been affected by sin. And, and we just find ourselves in sin before we know it. Um, and John says, you know, sometimes that sin, when you live like that, it'll lead you to physical death. And that's, that's scary stuff. So this unbroken pattern of sin is not something that's true in the life of a true believer. You know, John has constantly been talking about this. Make sure you're saved. Make sure you keep the commandments of God. Because if you don't, that's a sign that you don't know the Lord. Make sure that you have a love for God. Because if you don't have a love for God, that's a sign that you don't know the Lord. Make sure that you love people. Because if you don't love people, that's a sign that you don't love the Lord. You know, if you're a true believer, you will continue to pursue righteousness. You will continue to pursue after God. Now, in the second half of this verse, John tells us how we know we will continue, how we know we will not continue to live in sin as believers. John says, "He that is begotten of God keepeth himself." 
I don't want to confuse you here, but there are two different uh, ways you can interpret this. If you've got a King James Version, uh, the King James seems to, seems to suggest that the one begotten here is the believer. The believer that's begotten by God and the, that the believer keeps himself from the wicked one. Now, I will say that it's true that as a Christian you have a responsibility. The Bible says you're supposed to keep yourself pure in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. Uh, 1 John 3, 22 says you're supposed to keep the commandments of God. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says you're supposed to keep the faith. James 1.27 says you're supposed to keep yourself unspotted from the world. 1 John 5.21 says keep yourself from idols. 1 John 2.5 says keep the word. Uh, Jude 21 says keep yourself in the love of God. So there are a whole lot of places in the Bible where it talks about you keeping yourself. But then other translations of the Bible uh, suggest that the one begotten here is the Lord, the only begotten. Uh, Colossians 1.18 Therefore, Christ is the one that keeps believers from the wicked one. And there's a whole lot of evidence in Scripture that says that as well. Philippians 1.6 says that what God starts in you, He will bring about to completion. Jesus tells us in John 28 that He gives us eternal life and that we'll never perish. And in John 6.37 it says that, that, that whoever comes to Him, He's not going to cast them out. Um, he said in John 6.39, all that the Father gives Him, He's going to take. He's going to keep saved. And in fact, Jesus prays to the Father that all that belong to Him will be with Him in heaven in John 17, 24. The wicked one comes, tries to snatch Him away. He can't do it. But we have a great high priest who, who is able to keep us from that. Satan can tempt us, but he can never take us. So these are truths in the Bible that kind of just go alongside of each other. That we keep ourselves and that God keeps us. But those two truths are consistent with all of Scripture. Let me, let me share one verse with you that, that says both of those things as clearly as, as, as clearer than I could. It's Philippians um, 2, 12 and 13, where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, well, man, that's up to me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sure sounds like it, doesn't it? For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. <laughs> That second half makes it sound like it's all God, doesn't it? See, do you see that? I mean, th these, these are not something you divorce from one another. That we keep ourselves and that God keeps us. It's not something we would divorce from one another. These things don't contradict uh, one another. But we do know this, that if we are saved, we will continue in a life of righteousness. doesn't mean you won't stray. doesn't mean you won't slip and stumble and fall. But the Lord Himself will grab you and will pull you back. And if you resist and resist and resist, you may find that you check in early. Amen? You might find that. Why? Because God is that committed to keeping you saved. God is that committed to saving you. And that's an encouraging, wonderful thing. The next thing we know is this. We, we know that we belong to God. Look at verse 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. He said, look at that. The whole world lies in wickedness. That's not hard to believe, is it? Amen. Just watch the news. The whole world lies in wickedness. In other words, this whole world is under the power of Satan himself. The Bible says Satan is the God of this world, that he's blinded the minds of the people here. 
In John 12, 31, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. Satan has powerful influence over this world, powerful influence over every unsaved person. That's why in John 8, 44, the Bible calls the unsaved the children of the devil. Uh, that's why Ephesians 2, 2 says that children of disobedience. Why? Because they are so affected by Satan. They've taken on his characteristics. Galatians 1.4 tells us that Christ has delivered us from this present evil world. And that now according to John 1.12, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We don't belong to this world anymore. We belong to God. I was also mentioning this at, at our Bible study the other day uh, on, on Thursday that... Um, there's this lie, you know, that, that, and we don't even think about it when we say things like this because we, we've heard things said and we assume they're in the Bible. You know, we assume cleanliness is next to godliness is in the Bible. You know, we, there's a, I could list a whole bunch of little sayings like that that we think are in the Bible. And one of them is we are all God's children. But there's nowhere in the Bible that says we are all God's children. The Bible makes it very clear there are two families in this world. One belongs to God one belongs to the devil, one belongs to light, one belongs to darkness. And the Bible teaches that there's only one natural Son of God and His name is Jesus. The rest of us sons and daughters are adopted children of God. We're adopted into the family of God through the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross for our sins. Amen? And so we understand that, that we belong to God because He has adopted us into this family. Now, those thoughts and those ideas may make us feel uncomfortable and they may be contrary to what we hear in the world, but we need to remember that what the Word of God says should be what drives us. And here's what we can rejoice in, y'all. We can rejoice in the fact that we do belong to God. We can rejoice in the fact that we are a part of the family of God. And God has, uh, you know, when you think about adoption, you, you think about a person and, and just it's done in different ways, but let's just think about it done this way. There's an orphanage and there's a whole host of children and a, and a father walks into an orphanage and, and he looks and he says, that's the one I want. That, that child must feel a, a great sense of, of, of joy to know that, hey, I was wanted, amen? He came in there and they, they took me. And then that's when you and I think about our salvation, we should think about that. We are adopted. The father has come to us and he said, I want you to be my child. So we know we belong to him. It was, it was His decision. It was His desire to bring us to Himself. And then the next thing we know is we know that Jesus is the true God. We, we see that in verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. I want you to look at verse 21. John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, the false teachers of John's day had reinvented Jesus. They changed Him. In context, they had created a Jesus who was not God in the flesh. I mentioned before this, this form of Gnosticism that they held to that believed that everything that was physical was evil, everything that was spiritual was good. Therefore, they could not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh because in the philosophy that they had adopted, everything that was physical, everything that was matter was evil. 
But we know that Jesus came in the flesh. And, and, and John goes through this book and he tells us, look, hey, if you don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, then you're not worshiping the Jesus uh, that I worship. It's a different Jesus, one that you've invented. Now, we think about idolatry, and when we think about idolatry, we think about a statue, we think about a stone, something sitting up there like a totem pole or something. That's what we think about when we think about an idol. But, but understand this. Before, every, before any false god was carved, before any false god was chiseled, before any false god was built, it was first conceived in the mind. Right? They said, well, this is the God that we want. And then they built what was in their mind. And so you don't have to have a rock you're worshiping. You don't have to have a sculpture or some, something that's been built that you worship. Because the reality is it starts right here. And so they had created this Jesus in their own mind that was a completely different Jesus from the Bible. And John wants the believers here to turn away from the false Christ that's been offered by the false teachers. Keep yourself from idols. And then in verse 20, he gives us a beautiful description of Jesus. John here is going to tell us the truth about Jesus. Notice that John uses the word true three times in verse 20. I want to draw some truths out of that. First of all, Jesus is the one that reveals God to us. Uh, John says that the Son of God has come and He has given us an understanding so that we may know Him that is true. You know what? You know how we know who God is? We know who God is because of Jesus. That's how we know. We look at Jesus and when we look at Jesus, the Bible says He is the exact representation of the Father. That's who God is. We look at Him. We know He's true. Acts 4.12 says that there's no salvation in any other name other than the name of Jesus. Jesus tells us in John 14.6 that He is the only way to the Father. No matter how enlightened a person may become, no matter how sincere they may appear, without Christ, God cannot be known. And He said this before, I think last week we looked at this, that, that to know Christ is to know the Father. But if you don't know Christ, you don't know the Father. Remember last week, I was talking about all the other different religions who, who have a whole lot of history in the, in the Old Testament. Muslims believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, we talked about Judaism itself, which obviously believes in the God of Abraham and Isaac. But Jesus looked at those people who said they believed in the God of Abraham and Isaac and said, if you don't believe in Me, you don't believe Moses because Moses is the one who spoke of Me. He said, if you, you say to yourselves, well, we are children of Abraham. He said, but I say unto you, God is able of these children, of these rocks to raise up children of Abraham. He says, you can't boast in, in, in your lineage, in your ethnicity. God can make people out of rocks. He made them out of dust and rocks are more than dust. And so we understand here that, that without Christ, God can't be known, church. God can't be known. The second little truth under that is believers are united to God through Christ. John says, and we are in Him that is true. There's a whole lot of scriptures that talk about us being in Christ. Romans 8.1 says that we have no condemnation because we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that we have righteousness, sanctification, and redemption because we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you're a new creation because you're in Christ. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14 says you have peace because you are in Christ. 
And there's so much more I could say there, but understand that a whole lot of what you have in your life is simply there because you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you are in God because Christ is God. And then he goes even further and he says, Jesus is the one true God. He says, we're in Jesus Christ, and he says, this is the true God. Man, you want to talk about just one of those verses that says it as clear as it can say it? This is it. This is the true God. Jesus Christ. Um, Now, by the way, that's nothing new for John. John wrote one of the most exhaustive passages of Scripture declaring the deity of Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of John where he started off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John, this is nothing new to him, but again, he just puts it here to say this is the true God. Jesus Christ is God. And so, because Jesus is the true God, to worship any other is is idolatry. To reject Him, as I've already said, and I don't want to belabor that point, but to reject Him is to reject God. And then finally, we'll be done. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. Because Jesus is God, He possesses life within Himself. He alone has eternal life. We don't have Christ. We don't have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Christ gives life to those who receive Him. John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse uh, uh, um, verse 26. John chapter 10, verse 28. See, if you got Christ, you got eternal life. You've got it forever. And He closes the letter by reminding us just how much we know as believers. All of these beautiful, beautiful, indisputable truths that he lays out here. We know, we know, we know, we know. Here's the false teachers. You need to doubt what you believe. You need to doubt what you believe. You need to doubt what you believe. And John's saying, no, we know, we know, we know, we know. Listen to me, church. In a world filled with doubt, you can be assured. Amen? In a world filled with doubt you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that God hears your prayers. You can know that you have victory over sin. You can know that you belong to God. And finally, you can know that Jesus is the one true God. John lays all of those things out, those indisputable facts that should encourage you and I to press on toward the goal of seeing Christ Jesus face to face. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, section here in, in Scripture. My, my goal is to then move on to Second John and Third John, which are very short, short books, so we can get all of John's uh, epistles uh, done in, in one little group because they're, they're kind of similar. And, and with this theme fresh in our mind, it'll be good. But this coming Wednesday, what we're going to do is we're going to do something a little bit different um, on Wednesday night. Uh, This is something I talked with our um, deacons about, and it's something that I talked with our finance committee about, and everybody thought that it would be good that I I had a night where I shared this with the congregation. And uh, uh, we're going to do that this Wednesday night, and I'm going to be talking about some things that are going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, our denomination, the things that um, we all need to be praying about, things that we need to be thinking about. And so on Wednesday night, uh, we'll have our normal hymn time, our normal prayer time, uh, but we'll have uh, 
uh, a time where I share some things that are going on in the Southern Baptist Convention and also give you an opportunity to ask questions that I may or may not be able to answer and uh, maybe get some clarification on some things. So we're going to look at doing that on, uh, on Wednesday night. And then the following Sunday, we'll pick up with, uh, with 2 John. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for reminding us that in a world filled with uncertainty, there are undisputable facts. Facts, things we can know, we can hang our hat on. And those are found in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. And as we leave here, it's my prayer that we would go in the power and the Spirit of Christ, that you would be glorified in our life this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>